Welcome back to another episode of the same 24 hours podcast. I am very excited as we head into a new year. Um, granted, it's only December 2nd when I'm recording this, but I'm just going to go ahead and say we're heading into a new year because goodness, what a year 2020 has been. A couple of things I want to mention as we do go into a new year. I have this book called The Year of No Nonsense, and I'm really hoping that 2021 <laughs> will be your year of no nonsense in case last year was not um, or 2020, this current year. See, I'm already putting it behind me. It's fine. Um, but I am launching a new coaching community in the new year, and I hope you will be a part of it. It is a free community to all who want to join. And then within that, there will be coaching available, group coaching and training plans and the like. So all you have to do is go to swimbikemom.com, scroll down to the bottom, sign up for the email list, or follow me on Instagram at swimbikemom, and you will stay up to date on how to join that in the new year. And today's guest is Matt Fitzgerald. He is one of my favorites, um, favorite writers. He's an endurance writer. You probably know him from his books, How Bad Do You Want It? and Racing Weight. He is an icon in the endurance world. And we had a live online event, so um, people were able to join, ask questions as, as we talked, and it, it was a, a great, great time. So head over to my YouTube channel. You can find the link in my bio on Instagram. Or the username is not SwimBikeMom. It is MN Atwood. So just go find it in my bio. It'll be easier. <laughs> but there, there will be a video of our interview. And most of the same 24 hours interviews are now going up on YouTube as well. So if you like to watch and like if you're a kid in this generation, all they do is watch YouTube. If you'd like to watch, you can certainly check out the video interview with Matt. His new book, The Comeback Quotient, is out December 8th, and I had an advanced copy. It's fantastic, and we talk about that book and some of his others at length in the interview. So take a look, take a listen, and get Matt's new book, The Comeback Quotient, and enjoy this episode with author Matt Fitzgerald. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. So welcome everyone. We have the wonderful Matt Fitzgerald here today. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hello. We are talking. So I was really bummed because I created like this fancy green screen and I had a picture and it had his book cover and he's like, it's backwards. It looked right to me. But here is the book we are celebrating today. When's pub day? Next week? Um, yeah, the 8th or I think it's, it's almost always a Tuesday. So yeah, the 8th, the 8th thank you. Yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. So Welcome to a live edition of the Same 24 Hours podcast. And Matt Fitzgerald, as many of you know, is a fantastic endurance writer. Some of my favorite books. Um, loved How Bad Do You Want It. Didn't like Racing Weight so much, but we'll just leave that <laughs> one alone. <laughs> 
I don't like that for my own reasons. Um, but this is your newest book, The Comeback Quotient. And I have a passage um, here that I want to start off with, bookmarked with a tag from a t-shirt. That is my life. Okay. I love this quote. What makes endurance racing tricky is that you never know exactly how much suffering will be required to succeed until you are confronted with the reality of it. I thought that was so great. When I read that, I was like, oh yes, that's why I kept doing all those races <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't know how much suffering would be required until I was confronted with it. So such a great book, um, congratulations. But what made you decide to tackle this topic and why does everyone love a comeback? Uh, I guess I'll start with the first question. Um, I think, you know, anyone who's a fan, I mean, we're all, we're all sports participants. I think everyone listening is probably some kind of athlete. Um, uh, but as fans of sports, um, you know, amazing comebacks where someone who looks like they're at the brink of defeat and uh, pulls out a seemingly miraculous victory, it gives us hope, you know, for ourselves. I mean, it can be simply entertaining, but I think we draw something from it, uh, something personal that we can take forward um, so that, you know, the next time we face a challenge of some sort, we have just a little bit more belief that no matter how bad it looks, you know, it ain't over till it's over. Um, so I think there's just something deeply humanly inspiring about comebacks. Um, and then if you are not just a sports fan or observer, but an athlete yourself, there's a second level of meaning, I think, uh, where even on a more practical level, you can draw inspiration, but you can also um, draw, um, you know, practical steps. It's like the anatomy of a comeback. How, how did this person do what they did? Um, so that inevitably when you face a challenge or setback as an athlete, uh, you've got a, a bit of a blueprint for it. And that's exactly what I wanted to supply with this book. You know, there is a tendency to think, Oh, I could never do that, you know. And granted, you might not play in the Super Bowl, but you know, I think we can, we can, we can all um, succeed where failure seems almost certain. Um, and uh, and you know, I wanted to just pr to provide something that uh, offered, you know, how bad you want it, which you kindly uh, <clears throat> endorsed. Uh, you know that 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 book, I think. Um, is, is heavier on the inspirational side. And uh, I view the comeback quotient as kind of uh, uh, like a follow-up to it or a companion piece that is, it's a little bit more of the, the strategy and tactics. Like, okay, now you're inspired. Let's, uh, let's right. see how you act actually do this. Right, and I felt like there were parts of it that it was, what was so great about, uh, I mean, it's, it has lots of great parts, but one of the things that I think is so great is that you, one of the things that in order to have a comeback is you have to have a grasp on reality and you coined this term ultra realist. And that's kind of like, how bad do you want it? But are you really going to like face the truth? And so I, I agree with you that it's an excellent companion to how bad do you want it? Because this is like, you sneak in the truth here <laughs> and it's not like you didn't sneak it in and how bad do you want it? But here's like, Okay, if you're going to have a comeback, if you're going to be any sort of athlete, there's a certain reality that you have to face. So let's talk about this. What is the term ultra realist? Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's a pretty simple message uh, that I'm offering. And, and it really is that, you know, the secret to overcoming 
challenges and setbacks in, in sports and in life, frankly, um, is to squarely and fully face reality. Um, and, you know, comebacks come in infinite varieties. If you just look at, you know, the story level of comebacks, and, and I do define them broadly, those who read the book, you, you having read it yourself, or most of it, know that, you know, I, I offer all kinds of varied examples, because I don't, I don't want people to encounter a situation they feel like, oh, this isn't that, you know, this is like something that no one's ever faced before. Um, but so the ultra realists are just the people who are really, really, really good at this sort of thing. Uh, you know, I give the example that, you know, the first ultra realist I offer up is Joan Benoit um, Samuelson. And, you know, she's the athlete uh, who really made, she was my, one of my first athletic heroes, um, especially, you know, definitely my first running or endurance athletic hero. Um, and she made, you know, more than one great comeback. And, now, and who is she? Know, She's a marathoner, right? For anyone who doesn't yes, know. Yes, yes, sorry. You're all triathletes who don't- <laughs> Not all of us. Don't give a lick. <laughs> Let's give context. <laughs> but yes, she won the first ever women's Olympic marathon, uh, 1984. Um, I saw her uh, win the Boston Marathon in 1983. Um, you know, in person, I was there, I was 11. Um, and she ran the fastest time and a woman had ever run for that distance then. And, I was gonna say, uh, we weren't actually born yet. Right? <laughs> I oh was my very, gosh. I was very, very, very young. Very young. I know, I told my son this at dinner, he was like, what year were you born? He asked me tonight and I said 79 and he's like, <gasps> Like, oh my gosh. Anyway, sorry. I digress. 1984. That's almost the 80s. Um, almost an 80s baby. Yeah, so Joan Benoit, she made more than one great comeback. Um, and, and it's because people who are able to pull off one, they, there's something in them, right? It's not just that they get luckier, the stars align, like they're making it happen. And, and that's what ultra realism is. It's just someone who is you know it's partly willingness and to face reality and then partly ability. Um, so you know underneath the infinite variety of uh, of comebacks, you know my argument is that the people who pull off these amazing feats are all really going through the same process, you know, of fully facing reality. Yeah, and one of the things that you mention is. Like it, it's not just the ability to see reality, but it's a, an ability to also embrace it, accept it. Like there's, there's like a, th and I think I might've gotten this backwards, but like, there's a three-part process, like to get to the comeback. Yep. Yes. Three, three steps. Yeah. So, you know, broadly speaking, you're facing reality, um, but it has parts, uh, in, in, well, it's part, I love the analogy of, uh, you know, you, uh, if life gives you lemons, uh, make lemonade, because that's exactly what that expression is about, is facing reality. Um, step one is accepting it. Um, so yeah, you have to kind of see it before you can even accept it. But, you know, there are, there are instincts in us that make us want to turn away from difficult realities and, and pretend they're not happening, or we can kind of panic and freeze, which is actually sort of a way of rejecting reality. Like, the, the expression uh, or the phrase, this can't be happening. What is that? You're rejecting reality. This, that was this me in be. chapter two of Racing Weight. <laughs> I was like, this can't be happening. <laughs> On to his next book. <laughs> That's Done all right. with my jokes. 
something <laughs> for everyone. Uh, yeah. So first you have to accept it and just say, Hey, you know what? These are lemons. Life has given me lemons. I'm not going to pretend they're anything but lemons. Right. Uh, so, and then from there, once you've accepted reality, you have an opportunity to embrace it. And embracing a difficult reality doesn't mean you try to convince yourself you're like it or that you're glad that your shoe came off in the middle of, of a race. Embracing it means you simply commit to making the best of it. Like, like I'm, I'm not happy this happened, but I'm also not giving up. Like I've got lemons, I'm gonna see what I can make out of these things. And then once you've actually embraced the reality that you've also accepted, step three you know to pulling off the comeback is addressing it and you know going back to our metaphor you still got to make the damn lemonade <laughs> like right. simply simply committing to do it uh isn't enough and and that takes you know taking that final step takes a combination of both effort uh but also i you know i i take pains to point out in the book it also takes judgment it, people tend to think you can kind of brute force it you know that it's all about effort but really what the ultra realists demonstrate is that uh, it's that d smart decision making and sort of allowing your rational side to keep, uh, you know, its hands on the wheel <laughs> at all times mm. um, is really important uh, to that final step addressing reality. So in the research you did and the stories and the anecdotes that you learned and read, is there a connection, like are people just are they born with the ability to accept reality? Is it like the mindset? Is it like fixed mindset, growth mindset? Like how, what is the connection? Can you cultivate <laughs> the ability to accept the truth? I think you can, but I mean, maybe some people are, you know, born with it and maybe it's Maybelline for the others. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I were just like selling self-help, um, and I didn't actually fully believe in my own message. Like I probably would tell people, no, nobody's born with it. Like it's a hundred percent nurture, 0% nature, but you know, I'm, I'm giving people reality here. <laughs> and the reality is yes, some people are born with it clearly. Um, but and that's no different from physical talent. And I say this in the book. You know, just because, you know, as an athlete yourself, I, I assume there are no, you know, Olympic champions listening. Uh, if you are, unmute yourself and correct me. <laughs> I have some <laughs> friends. Let me call them. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so with physical talent, you know, we know that we're, you know, we individually are not the most talented athlete, but that doesn't make us want to give up, right? Because we know we can we can get fitter, you know, we can increase our physical fitness by, by training, by, by working at it. And I think it's really the same thing with, with mental fitness uh, that yes, yeah, some people, uh, you know, there's a spectrum, a bell curve in terms of like how much of it people are born with, but anyone can cultivate it. And I see that all the time. It's a big part of my, my coaching work. Any coach will tell you um, that, you know, especially with more experienced athletes, it's not so much the X's and O's, like, you know, they could probably pick their own workouts, but, you know, you're, you're developing mental fitness more than anything. It's what, it, and it's one of the more rewarding aspects of, of coaching really, because you see that, that growth occur. Yeah. You talk in the book about one of your athletes who, um, emailed you or something and said like it was the end of the world or the work like something about a sledgehammer and, yeah. and Pound, pounding the panic button with a sledgehammer that that was the subject 
line of the email he sent me. Right. And then you, you commentated that like this guy had like 20 weeks of great training in this one long run just sent him spiraling. And, and that's kind of, I think that's where you tie it in. Like, okay, some people are born with this and some people got to work on it. Right. To, to kind of simmer yeah. down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so much of this is really, I mean, I just love how simple uh, this message is. It, it's really about where, where athletes get themselves into trouble is that they allow themselves to be dependent on things going their way. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, you know, it's like I refuse to be confident unless every workout goes well. And that's kind of what this guy was doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I give a counter. Uh, well, I think I do in the book. Uh, if, I, if I didn't, I do elsewhere. Uh, counterexample of uh, an elite athlete I know who had an, a very parallel experience, like a bunch of good training, one bad workout, and he just brushed it off. You know, he, he almost right. sounded like he was the coach talking about someone else who'd had the bad run, just completely dispassionate. It's like, no, you know, just the smart thing to bail out a couple uh, miles early, you know, just to live to fight another day. Um, you know, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to force it and, you know, dig a hole I couldn't climb out of. Like that's the ultra realist way of, of handling a very common type of scenario, like bad workouts. Nobody likes them, but right. you know, I see, I see a lot of athletes, you know, their confidence takes a much bigger hit than it really should. Um, and when you have these counterexamples, these ultra realists kind of showing you how it's done, then it's, then it's sort of like, well, what's your excuse? Right. And it's, go back, read, how bad do you want it? Like, let's go cyclical here. <laughs> now go back to that book and ask yourself, but it's kind of like the Eeyore syndrome. And, you know, you have like people who, who do great things for a period of time. One thing happens, it's like, oh, my tail fell off. I'm worthless. And it's just this, this downward um, spiral, but like how much does expectation and you kind of touched on this, but expectation can be like the, the worst enemy in endurance yes. racing. And I've noticed like a lot of the examples that you talk about in the book deal with injury. And it's like people not listening to their intuition. Like they know that, you know, something's not right. They keep pushing because the expectation is they're going to do this. Like, let's talk about expectation and maybe kind of segue into injury. Cause that seems like a big part of this comeback quotient yeah. is <laughs> like, you have to be hurt <laughs> at <Right>. some point. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, you have to there's something you have to come back from. But again, I, I do try to define it broadly, like, you know, just not to go on a tangent, but to go on a tangent, um, you know, some people around this time of year, they'll start uh, getting bummed out and complaining about where they live and like, uh, you know, the weather here in the winter just sucks for training and they can't just sort of accept it. You know, it, it doesn't mean you have to like it, but just sort of like, sort of like training and kind of a low grade bad mood, but like with low morale, like, <laughs> I mean, it's possible to get past these things. So, it, you know, it's not just that you have to get injured. The, 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 the mindset that, that I'm trying to, you know, teach here, you could use it literally every day. Like it, it doesn't, it's not just for disaster scenarios. It's for right. like, like, you know, follow your negative emotions. Anytime you're experiencing negative emotions around, you know, training or racing, there's an opportunity there to practice ultra realism. Um, so yeah, to get back to your question uh, regarding expectation, it's a double-edged sword. You know, we know that expectations are, are self-fulfilling. Um, and so in, in one sense, 
you do want to have, you know, positive expectations. Um, uh, I give the example of a study uh, involving uh, an ultra runners, and, and they were participating in this this crazy race in France that like the the, the finish rate is like less than fifty percent. Um, and they they were uh, they asked people before the race like, um, you know, how about the strength of their expectation to finish? And you know, as you would expect, those who um, you know really, really, really were sure they were going to make it were more likely to make it through. Right. Um, yeah, and those who are like, oh, you know, if everything if everything lines up and everything goes my way, you know, I think I've got I a hope, chance. Like the evil <laughs> yeah. word, hope. Um, yes. But that's like different though, right? Because it's an expectation of your confidence that you can pull it off. But where people get sidelined is the expectation of this is my pace. This is my power out, output. This yes, is, you know, exactly. where that, right? I mean, because the, there's a distinction between because I always say there's not a race that I started that I didn't stand on the starting line and go I'm going to finish this and I'm going to get every minute out of the time limit possible because I want to make the most of my experience I want to use all my time Um, but I always knew that I would finish and that's a different expectation than granular right yes yes so um, I said double-edged sword. I only got to one edge. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah, the, the other edge, and that, that's where we get back to this idea of like, depending on things working out your way. Like that, you know, when you sort of, your, your expectation is that, you know, the weather is going to be good on race day and that, um, you know, you're, um, I don't know, that you're going to tolerate your breakfast well and that your, you know, pre-race nerves will be, uh, under control, you know, wh- when you when you have those sorts of expectations and you're sort of counting on them, um, that that that's a negative sort of expectation because you're 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 allowing yourself, you're allowing your mind state to be dependent on luck, on things you can't control. Whereas the ultra realist mentality is is more like, well, you know, yeah, I, I hope the weather is good, but I also don't really care. You know, I remember, <laughs> I, I remember being on a, a plane. I, I happened to catch a flight to the Chicago Marathon in 2017, and I sat next to Faisa Luisa, who uh, was a 204 marathon or 204, um, and I think he'd won Chicago before. And so, um, but I just, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a geek, and I. You know, I used the opportunity to pick his brain. Poor guy, the entire flight. I'm geeking out. Um, and I, I, sh- I pulled up my phone at one point and showed him the weather forecast because he, he was going to run, I was going to run, and it was going to be hot. And yeah. I, I'm like, you know, look how hot it's going to be. He's like, yeah, it's the same for everyone, you know. <laughs> right. Like, you know, if it's hot for me, it's hot for the guy I'm trying to beat. So, like, he didn't care. I mean, I could tell he wasn't just like talking that way because he was talking to a journalist like he, he meant it like he had sort of he, he let go of those sorts of expectations and then he's like off the record i'm freaking out on the record <laughs> it's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there is and you know i grew up in georgia and, and we just moved up to massachusetts recently so i raced augusta like i don't know seven thousand times and there was always this expectation like augusta has the downriver swim it's supposed to be lightning fast. It's always wetsuit legal. And I think I raced it three of the five years. It was not wetsuit legal, but like the people, you know, in transition flipping their lids because, you know, well, this was supposed to be, and I'm like, wow, are we really trying to control a river here? Like it's, it's just, 
I don't understand how external factors become so important. Is it yeah. like, is it an excuse? Is it just not knowing any better? Is it like a personality type? Is it traced back to childhood? Like what, what is it that allows the weight of the river <laughs> to come in on someone on race day and be like, Oh God, I'm screwed. Like what, what has, what have you seen? Yeah. I mean, you know, that, I don't know, that might get a little beyond my, my pay grade, but well, what I will emphasize is that, and I do say this in the book is that, um, I mean, yes, some, some people, uh, you know, negotiate those sorts of expectations with a more aplomb than others, but it also, it is also just human to do so because, uh, you know, we all start off as helpless infants you know, taken care of by these seemingly, seemingly, you know, omnipotent, all-powerful adults. And so those are our first experiences in life where we are dependent. And, you know, when we're fed on time, we're happy. And when we're not, we're unhappy. And, and so, you know, we all grow up and mature and, and start to take care of more things our, ourselves. But I, I think, you know, that that psychology is ingrained at that point where we all sort of you know, to some extent, count on, you know, forces outside of ourselves to take care of things for us. And I think it, it's healthy to an extent because um, it prevents us from, um, I mean, you know, Starving. laziness, well, <laughs> laziness to an extent can be adaptive, right? Because you don't go around wasting energy. Like, I mean, you know, why do things for yourself if someone is going to do them for you? <laughs> That's an excellent point. See, you really are like very qualified to talk about this. All things I've not thought about. Makes sense to me. Let's choose lazy. Why not? Yeah. But yes, you know, so beyond a a certain point, it becomes maladaptive. um, And yeah, like if you're just freaking out um, in circumstances again, uh, I I just love that, that uh, those sort of shaming, like what's your excuse comparisons where like, you know, another athlete who's doing the same race and is going to be facing the same conditions that you're freaking out about is not freaking out, you know? So they're showing you what's possible um, right? and, and, and they're going to have a better race because they're, they're not freaking out. And that's ultimately, you know, what we're trying to do. Right. And a lot of things you write about, I mean, what do you, I don't know, percentage wise, but so much of it is mental fitness. And if you lean toward the freaking out, there are ways to improve that and and to start to tell yourself some version of a better version of the truth and and to train your mind. So what is some of the best, I guess, advice or research or examples that you've seen for how an athlete can go from like an Eeyore or a freaker outer to really like honing it in, pulling it internal? What can I control? Like, what what is some of the advice you've seen? Yeah, um, you know, th- there's a lot of little stuff I, I offer in the book. Um, you know, just things you could do. Um, you know, that are a little bit more. I don't know the kind of stuff that you might find in other sports psychology books. But the stuff I, you know, as an athlete myself, I I put more stock in is kind of the the bigger stuff. Even even the conceptual framework, just simply understanding that that your job in stressful moments and in sort of crisis moments or, you know, shit hitting the fan moments uh, in your athletic life is to face reality because that, that concept is not, I mean, that's, this is why I wrote the book. This is why this right. book is needed because people don't have that concept. And right. um, yeah, I, I liken it to like the, the boy Scouts code, 
like, you know, just having a general intention to behave a certain way in the world just doesn't have the power, the same power to actually modify behavior as having an explicit code. Like it's written down, like these are the rules. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I, I'm big on that. Just like, you know, th those three steps um, on a kind of the, ne the next level down, I offer lots of mantras in the book, um, little, little phrases that are sort of, you know, if, if the if the ultra realist code is the constitution, the mantras are the laws, <laughs> and and they're a little bit more situational specific, situationally specific. So some are like uh, they're about staying process focused, um, and you know so there are a lot of moments when an athlete. I give the example in the in the book of like if you have what yeah, one, one one rabbit hole I see athletes go down all the time psychologically is, um, you know, they have a goal for a race that's so many weeks out and they're measuring themselves against the athlete they need to be in the future all the way along and negatively because they're not there yet, right? So I do a workout today and, you know, say you're just, I hate to give running examples, but they're easier. Um, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so you're training for a marathon, you, you do a 10 mile training run and it's kind of hard and you start thinking, how am I going to run more than twice this far? Like I barely right. made it 10 miles. Um, you know, but you've got, you've got, you know, 11 weeks or, or whatever, you know, it's not race day. And, and so yeah, what you want to do there is just stay process focused, like stay, just take the step. Um, and, you know, I offer some mantras in the book. That, so they're just things like, uh, I also have this concept of, I'm just running away here, but uh, this go ahead, run, the, <laughs> make it easy <laughs> of the, uh, the internal ombudsman. So, you know, an ombudsman is, uh, you know, like a lot of newspapers have them. It's an employee of the newspaper whose job is to keep the newspaper itself in line. So they'll, they'll receive complaints from the public. And the ombudsman is sort of like, like peripheral to the organization. So he's not, his job, even though he's employed by the newspaper, he's not covering the newspapers, but he's keeping the newspaper in line. So he, you know, he listens to the, it's sort of like internal affairs in the police department. So right. we, we all, we all have the capability to have our own internal um, ombudsman. So you need to get good Say at that, that three times fast. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's <laughs> a yeah. But it's uh, you know, psychologists would call that metaconsciousness or metacognition when you're, you're able to just step back from your own feelings and thoughts and, and see them as feelings and thoughts. So you're not just having them, you're, you're looking at them. And that, that opens up an opportunity to change them. So that you kind of need to do for yourself because you can't call on one of these mantras to help you out, you know, to, to make you more process focused when you're looking too far down the road, unless you, you have that moment of recognition. It's like, oh, I'm doing that thing again. Um, so right. part of it is just this ongoing process. That's why I said earlier, you know, follow the negative emotions because uh, that, that's, that's the spark. That, that's the thing you're you're trying to catch like when you're meditating and you're supposed to be emptying your mind and at some point you start making shopping lists it's like <laughs> you're you know, you're supposed to catch yourself um before you've gotten to item 27 on your shopping list like you know a, a really good zen buddhist can only get three items into their shopping list before they catch themselves i just get to 27 and then i stop and write my list and i'm like why don't i meditate i don't know um one of the things that came to mind um when you i don't know what you mentioned but um it every time someone signs up for an iron man say for example and then they do a 70.3 like six months prior 
you know, and I get the call and, and granted I may have different caliber of athletes than you do. In fact, I know I do, but they're like, Oh my God, there's just no way I could do double that. And it's that whole concept of you're thinking you should be Ironman ready in that moment. Not to mention it's kind of a different racing engine to begin with. Like you train differently, you go slower, but it's that expectation that something in the future, like you should be there already. And so the 70.3 should have been like, no big deal. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's exactly what, what, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's, I mean, there are ways to, I mean, like, you know, people feel like they have no choice, but to have that reaction, you know, when they have that experience. Um, but you really do like, again, like there are other athletes who aren't doing it. So what's your, what's your excuse? (laughs) Like, so, um, you know, in, in that, in that specific um, scenario, uh, which actually we maybe are the caliber of athletes we coach, um, isn't all that different. Um, uh, an exercise that that I and I alluded to it earlier that that I like to use with athletes in situations like that is pretend it's not you. Like pretend mm. that you're getting this panic call from a friend. Um, you know, would you just uh, validate <laughs> what? Would you say you're absolutely right? There's no freaking way. <laughs> you're dead. No, I know. And I feel like I should like qualify what I said. Athletes, I wasn't saying you're bad athletes. I'm just saying this guy over here runs really fast. Like, okay, like I love you. You're a great athlete. I'm not saying you're, you're a lower caliber. We're just like different, you know, it's like, that's all. Just calm it down. I'm getting mean tweets as we speak now. Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, yes. what, what were you saying? <laughs> yeah, so the, the exercise. I put my footnote. <laughs> the, the pretend it's not you exercise. Yes. It's like how, you know, like you have a friend who like, uh, you know, they, they're in a bad relationship and you're like, you're such an idiot. Like, can't you see this person's bad for you? Uh, but then, you know, six months down the line, like the roles are reversed. Like you're in a bad relationship and you don't see that that person's bad for you. And your friend's like, can't you see this person's bad for you? Like when it's, when it's ourselves, like emotion can take over and, you know, it's going to kind of rest the steering wheel away from our reason. Um, so that, could, you know, it, that's, that's sort of a different way of kind of uh, tricking yourself into that metacognitive state where you're able just to, you know, take a step back, take a breather and, and yeah. really do your best to assess the situation, you know, rationally. I mean, you, you can't just, you know, put emotion to sleep, but you can try, you know, you can you know, just try to get gain perspective on, on your own. Sure. So I'm going to pivot to another one of your books, but anyone who has any questions, um, you can put up your little zoom hand and I will call on you be on video if you're going to like speak, but if you have any questions, you can put them in the chat too. If you're on Facebook, you're out of luck. I'm not looking. (laughs) Sorry. Um, but yeah, we will throw some questions to Matt from you. If you have them, um, I want to pivot to your book. Life is a marathon. Life is a marathon, not love, right? Life, life. Life is a marathon. You've done that before though. <laughs> I did. Haven't you? Of course Others I have. Did. Of yeah. course I have. I told you I'm a Muppet. Like it's, <laughs> if there's a way to mess up something, I'll do it. Um, but also another great book, totally different from some of your other uh, writings before, but a really just, I, you had, I didn't, I think you sent me a copy and I thought, okay, well, and I started reading, I was like, oh my God. And I read it in like eight hours and it was just fantastic. But one of the things that 
a lot of people might not know about you is that you are married to an African-American woman and the, and your love story is outstandingly crazy, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, outstandingly crazy. And like your journey together as a couple is, is outlined in that book and is so beautiful. And I just want to like, give you a space to talk about that. Um, however you want to go with it, but I know like you and I, uh, you know, we have a platform, we use it, we say what we want. Um, I kind of want to give you that space while I kind of see if anyone has any questions, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, you know, I'm really fond of that, that quote, which it's actually the epigraph for how bad you want it. It's from the, the novel, The Power of One, The Mind is the Athlete. Um, so yeah, life is a marathon, it's a memoir. So it is kind of an outlier in my, um, but that's the connection where, you know, it's, it's, it's the story of my running journey and my love journey. And that sounds like two different books and like, how could they possibly be one book? But it's because the mind is the athlete. You only have one mind and you use it in life outside of athletics and you use the same mind uh, in sport too. So, you know, for, for me, I talk about in the book how as a, as a young athlete, I was a head case and it ruined running for me. Just my, what I, what I you know, uh, harshly describe as my cowardice, <laughs> you know, I just- Yeah, I, you were a I, little I, hard on yourself. <laughs> but I, I am, I, I still am. <laughs> but you know, I, I, um, I, was not, I, I, I was not the person I wanted to be, put it that okay. way. Um, as a young That's athlete, better. I, I wasn't going to yes. have to like time out. Like, Wait a minute. Yeah. Right. So you for me, you be. so for me, running was a, was a, a, a vehicle for bootstrapping myself into becoming more and more, you know, the man I wanted to be uh, like, I wanted to be strong, you know, I, and I wanted to see myself as strong and, you know, so I'm chipping away at this and then I married, I meet and marry Nataki. Um, and yeah, so we're, you know, totally, you know, opposites attract, worlds collide, you know, no dating service that could possibly stay in business ever would have put us <laughs> together, but, but we, we, we were making it work. And then uh, she developed uh, bipolar disorder. Um, and, you know, so, so that uh, out of left field, you know, turning your world upside down, you know, that, 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 there we have an example of things not going away in, in right. life. Um, and, you know, it tested me it had nothing to do with running, um, you know, but, you know, it, it tested me like nothing else ever had in my life. Obviously, even, you know, she, she has the mental illness. So, you know, far, far worse for, for her, but, um, but in, in, in the oddest of ways, you know, I, I, I felt like I came to recognize that the training I was doing in trying to become a stronger person through running uh, gave me the foothold I needed to be able to just become the husband I needed to to be for her. I definitely wasn't ready <laughs> in the beginning, and I just screwed up left and right. But you know, here we are today. You know, um, doing well, and I think you know, the the reason I survived running had a lot to do. The, the work I was doing on my mental fitness had a lot to do with my ability to you know find my way through that. And actually, quite honestly the experience I had in my relationship, I have had within my relationship with Nataki has made me a better runner too, you know, cause the stakes are so much higher. Like I, I, I used to get so nervous before 
races, like I, I mentioned it in, in the book, I, I actually faked injuries to get out of racing in high school. I, at one time I, you know, it's the opening scene of the book. I did not even answer the call to the start line. I just went and hid in the woods. Um, now. <laughs> I remember that. Oh my gosh, Matt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I did, a, I did an Ironman. I did an Ironman last year and like, I, I had absolutely no nerves whatsoever on, on the start line. Like I was excited. I was ready. And, but just like zero nerves and, and just like that's a 180 degree transformation that I experienced and you know using difficult life experiences was a, a part of what got me there right and for so many of us I mean racing or sports it is life I mean it's a huge part but it's not the stuff right it's it's life is so much bigger than racing and and everyone's like oh no but that's what that book really spoke it's like it's life is a marathon but it's the marathon like you really got to be in like that's right. the stuff that matters and so that's the other book okay you got a question you got several oh now they're coming in too fast um the first one i want to hit was a private message okay i crashed my bike five weeks ago and broke my elbow and fractured a bone in my hip i'm scheduled to do my first 70.3 next summer and wondered what you think are the keys right now for me to stay focused while i cannot train that's a good question. Yeah, uh, I, I know. Yeah, let's, uh, let's show a little empathy before we answer yeah. the question. That yes, yes. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a drag. Uh, that's yeah. Those are your lemons. Um, right. So um, you know, I'll, I'll answer it this way. Things I would do in that situation. One, it, it's always it's always helpful to feel like you're making some kind of progress now. So it's easy to focus on what you can't do now, but there's there's, there's gotta be something and, and probably more than one thing you can be doing now um, to start getting ready for that 70.3. So it might not be swimming, but it could be some, you know, obviously, you know, rehab work is gonna be in there uh, somewhere. Um, uh, you know, even, you know, learning about the sport, like, so let's say like you were in traction and you couldn't even get out of your bed for, for, for now, you could still be doing stuff like, you know, boning up, educating yourself about, uh, you know, the more advanced training methods that you might use once you can get up off that bed. Yes. Maybe reading the you comeback need a book course. about comebacks. With <laughs> right. Focusing more on, on nutrition or, you know, just, just think about it, It's as simple as, I mean, I don't even need to tell you what it would be just, but, but just to take your focus on what you can't do now and put it, putting it on, uh, what you can do now. And then also I think it, it'd be helpful to just, you know, this is this is going to be an, an ongoing process, but start thinking about what what realistic expectations will be for that event. Like, you know, what how how do you define success in, in the book? You know, I, I I go out of my way to give examples of comebacks that aren't successful in the conventional sense because ultra realists for them it's about the satisfaction comes from making the best of the situation. It doesn't come from winning per se. You know, it, you know if someone who's really got that mentality uh, can look back and say, I, you know, I didn't win, but I know that I made the best of a really bad situation. That is deeply satisfying um, if you've got your, your, your mindset right. So, you know, when you're looking ahead to, you know, that event, it, like don't get in that place where you hope that you're just as fit and ready as if the accident didn't happen because you might be, but you might not be. 
And you need, you need to be able to define success in a way where you have the opportunity to succeed regardless. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just another example of not allowing yourself to be dependent on, on factors that are outside your control. Yeah, that's good. Okay, next question. What is the best way to train your brain for getting used to living in the pain cave during a hard training session or race? More pain cave. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, I said it was simple, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do it more, <laughs> suffer more. Um, for me, again, you know, because I, I can really speak to this because, you know, I, that was my thing, you know, you know, for, you know, growing up in the tiny little state I grew up in, like, it wasn't that hard to be one of the more competitive runners in the state. And, and I was. And for me, it wasn't, it wasn't the pressure to win uh, that, that got inside my head. It was really the fear of the suffering. Like I just, I did, I didn't want to hurt as much as I knew I was going to have to, to take that last step from, you know, you know, top six in the state to number one. Um, and, but like I said, I, I've gotten much better at that. And for me, the number one key ingredient was intentionality. Like I just made it my explicit project to, to get better at that. And, it, it's really can't happen any other way. Like you said, more pain cave, but if, if you, if you, and that's, that is part of it. But if you keep going back to the pain cave, sort of hoping it's easier this time, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get very far at all. The idea is to go to the pain cave, seeking the pain. Um, and I, I would do this in races, um, you know, very, I would even do some races I might not have done otherwise, just for the opportunity. Um, to, you know, normally you go into a race and you're worried about your numbers, right? What place do I finish and what's my time? Like I, I went through this whole phase where I would judge my performance only on 0% to 100%, how much did I leave out on the race course? So, you know, if my time was slowish and my place was nothing to write home about, but I knew I'd left it all out there that I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't have hurt any more than I did like that, that satisfied me. And for a while I couldn't do it. I couldn't, you know, I, I just, I, when I got out there, when the, I had the intention and I, you know, when, you know, when the chips, what, what's the expression? The chips the were chips on the line. I don't know. <laughs> you know, the, at, yeah, at crunch time, um, I couldn't, I couldn't do what I had intended to do. So it, it, it was a process. It, it, did, it didn't happen in one easy step, um, but it really did work that way for me. So just, you know, make, you know, you know, the thing you fear, make it the, make it the thing you seek. Uh, and there's, there's power in that. And then also just don't expect it to happen all at once. Just look for, for progress the same way you do on the physical side, look for it on, on the mental side as well. Yeah. And you, you quote in the book, Marcus Aurelius, like the obstacles, and that's the Ryan Holiday translation, the obstacles, the way the, you know, whatever's in your way, like, that's what you have to keep like slamming your face into <laughs> like right. over and over again. Like that's the way to the pain cave, right. Is to make peace with it and welcome it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I like, obviously that quote is everywhere. Uh, but you know, you know, my spin on it is, is it really does speak to that ultra realist mentality that, you really don't care whether there's an obstacle or not, because whatever, whatever shows itself in your path, whether it's smooth road or a barrier, it shows you what you have to do next. Like what's worse is like blindness, like not knowing mm -hmm. what the next step is, you know, the, the real, you know, 
Jedi's of, of ultra realism, I mean, they really are indifferent to whether things go their way or not. Like, it's just like, good, now I know what I need to do. Um, you know, they just, all they want is that, is whatever's next to be revealed to them so they can get to work on it, whether it's smooth road or an obstacle, doesn't matter. Amazing. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm like, yeah, that's so not me, but yeah, <laughs> I can do that. Yeah. All right. So someone wants to know how you were doing since you're recovering from COVID and the comeback is not easy. I did not know you were sick. I'm sorry. I'm a bad online friend. Um, so what are you doing for recovery? How you feeling? <laughs> What's shaking? You look pretty good. <laughs> yeah. How's your temperature? The, um, yeah. I can do a little heart rate check here. Uh, um, yeah. Well, I mean, the timing was weird because um, I just posted, uh, uh, you can read it sometime later, Meredith, but I just posted a, a personal account today of, about what I, what I believe is um, post-acute COVID-19 syndrome. Um, and the reason I'm not sure, but well, I'm not sure for a couple of reasons, but um, it was delayed onset for me. Um, and that I, that's unheard of. Like I, I cannot, I've been doing tons of research. I cannot find a single other case of someone who gets this, you know, long haul thing. Uh, you know, you know, it's always, you get the virus, you get over the virus and then, you know, the long-term symptoms set in. I, I had the virus back in March and April, got healthy was firing on all cylinders for six months. I, you know, I felt good. I was getting after it with training and virtual races. Um, and then unfortunately, I think um, we had the wildfires here in California and they they were here for a long time and the smoke was unavoidable. I, you know, I was training indoors with a mask on <laughs> mm -hmm. and, but I was getting headaches and the, like this raw throat. And I definitely had a bad reaction to the smoke and it wasn't long after that, that I started going backwards with, with my health. Wow. Um, what I can say for sure is uh, many of the symptoms I'm experiencing now, uh, like, you know, shortness of breath, um, like just bizarrely erratic heart rate, um, uh, a bunch of others, like crazy excessive thirst, like numbness in my extremities. I actually can't feel my left foot as, as I speak to you. Um, wow. yeah, just weird, weird, weird stuff. But a lot of this stuff is it's, it's, when I read other people's account, long haulers, like I, I literally get goose flesh sometimes because I'm reading about my experience, uh, like lightheadedness. Like you get up and just climb a flight of stairs and you're just your hands on knees, just like, oh my God. Um, so yeah, I'm going through all that now. It, it started eight weeks ago um, and, and nobody knows whether everyone with this is gonna get better. Um, to, um, so that, talk about like, going right back to what I was saying about like, you want to know the way, whether it's smooth road or an obstacle. Right now, I yeah, I don't know, and that's a tough place to be. And actually, in the book, I talk about like dealing with uncertainty because that can be a that can be a huge one. Like you like to not know. Like right now, I can barely run. the The run I just did before getting on here was um, four minutes walking, one minute jogging on the treadmill. I do everything on the treadmill because I just don't know what my body is going to give me on a given day. So like, I'm just doing what I can and, and, and not trying to do too much. And I, I don't know if this is forever. I uh, sure don't want it to be, but I'm trying to be as, I'm trying to practice what I preach. And that's what that blog post is all about. Um, where I, I'm just, um, I'm trying to just not actively hope it gets better because if it doesn't, I'm setting myself up for, you know, poor coping. So I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to learn to be okay with the way things are now. And 
uh, and it, you know, it's very difficult, but I feel like I'm doing better than I would be if I didn't, you know, didn't have my book. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, this sounds like you might be setting up for a comeback. I don't know. It's like publishing a book called The Year of No Nonsense before 2020 hit. And then telling everyone like, this is a great idea to read this book, The Year of No Nonsense during a global pandemic and everything else. It's like, um, yeah, you're set, you're just setting up for the, for the sequel you know, in the trilogy, the how bad do you want it, the comeback quotient and whatever it is, whatever that's, great that's, book is next. That's the plan. That's the plan. All right. Last question. And then we will wrap it up. Any advice how to train mentally for, I guess, with a spouse who doesn't share or how to train mentally for a spouse who doesn't share the same passion towards racing. So living with a Scrooge, <laughs> a racing Scrooge. Yeah, I mean that—that's me too. Um, you know, when Nataki and I started dating, I was not doing this stuff, um, and I got back into it. And you know, for her, it's like, who are you? <laughs> like, wh like, why? Why do you all of a sudden need to be on your bike more than, <laughs> more than you're you're with me? Um, and so that was tough. I mean, it uh, it led to some knockout knock. I'm screwing up all my, by the way, brain fog, uh, is another symptom of, of this thing. So I'm, I'm hanging You're doing on great. You're doing great. <laughs> right. Uh, knockdown drag out. Drag out. Uh, yeah. Yes. That Thank knockdown you. Drag out. Like squabbles between us. And it was entirely my fault. Like I was just being selfish and I was changing on her, you know, putting a, a hobby before her, but she started to see, um, you know, communication is the thing is what I'm trying to get to. Like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, I needed to be flexible and, and just say, hey, you know, I think I have a right to do this. You know, it, it makes me happy. It's important to me. And then, you know, but I also if I simply didn't value her more ultimately than I did my bike, um, it wouldn't have worked. But I did. So I, ha I, I she had to be flexible. I had to be flexible. We had to communicate. This is another thing that did not happen overnight. Um, but, but that's the key, like, just like, just, just be honest. Like, don't put it all out there. Just like, even like we, we, we do some things self-protectively that don't serve the interest of the, 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 uh, the relationship. And one example in this exact circumstance might be just go ahead and say, I know this is selfish. Like it can be so hard to admit, like, you know, that you're doing that, but just do it. Like, like, I can't honestly really justify this, but I know I want it. Like, that's kind of what I, I, I didn't do that the first time with the Taki, but like, it's like, there it is. <laughs> like, you know what, in a way you're right. I am putting the bike in, in front of you. Um, you're like, I, I promise I love you more than the bike. I know that I'm not acting like it. And I, I, I would like you to give me permission to continue not acting like it, like here and there, like maybe Saturday. <laughs> um, but I think that kind of, that kind of sort of, you know, just that honesty and that ability to just, you know, you know, show your warts, you know, often it's like, you know what your problem is, <laughs> you know, the, you know, each spouse going back and forth, you know what right. your, like, just volunteer it. You know what my problem is? Like, right. <laughs> right. And, you know, I'll just piggyback onto that. When I started like, I guess I'll even call it working out because I did nothing for a, a, a decade. And then we had two kids under two and I started training for a triathlon. And I remember my husband being like, 
are you serious right now? Like you're going out on a bike ride and you're leaving me with a two-year-old and a one-year-old. Like, I mean, I could just tell I was dead to him, you know? And so (laughs) I had to come up with a plan and the plan was I had to get him into triathlon too. (laughs) And so I I was like, guess what? I signed you up for an Olympic distance race. And he's like, oh. Um, And so there is there is that you can connive and and get them to come with you. But if they have no intention of it, I think Matt, you're completely right. It's just like, look, this makes me happy. What would make you happy? Would, you know, Sunday, like if you have kids, it's like, okay, I take the kids Saturday, you take them Sunday. Like how do we divide the labor of the house? So no one, you know, that's never going to be equal, but there is that whole thing of, of yes, I, I realize I'm being selfish, but I'll let you be selfish about something else too. Like, how can we negotiate this? And that that helped in my house, um, except when we were both like really training for the same race. And then you're just gonna fight. So just that's acceptance. That's the <laughs> exactly. ultra-realist well, of like we're just gonna brawl and then we won't. Yeah, we're in the brawling phase. We're so in the brawling it. phase. It's fine. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for your time, everyone. This book is out next Tuesday, December 8th. The Comeback Quotient. Very good read. Very good read. Um, the sequel to How Bad Do You Want It? Um, the middle in the trilogy. <laughs> right. Third book, we do not know. We do. All my right. comeback. My, my, oh, my big Matt's comeback. comeback. How yes. Bad Do You Want It? The Comeback Quotient. And Matt's comeback. Sincerely, Matt's comeback. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thanks for joining and pick up the book. That's really like all authors need you to do. And then they need you to give them a five-star review on the Amazon. So go do that. And thank you, Matt. And I hope you get feeling better. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.